today's episode is brought to you by the Buick Encore. We know a lot of you listen to us while you're commuting, and whether that means you're on a train, walking to work, or in your car, commuting is maybe not the most fun, but we do know something that can make it a little better. Introducing the Buick Encore, because let's face it, if you're going to get stuck in traffic, which you are, why not spend that time in a car you love? The Buick Encore takes the stress out of boring driving situations. I would like to think we do too. You know what else is really fun when you're in the car? Do you remember the license plate game? I think you're alone on that one. Let's just get into today's episode. To me, if I had a business trip and I could just sit in my room in my jammies having room service. It's the best. I know. It's oh, it's the best. best. It's just like are, you I've are won third the lottery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've won the lottery, right? Yeah. You're just the absolute best. And it's interesting. I think, I think as a leader, you do have to overcome those parts of your nature because the team expects you to do that. I'm Danielle Weisberg, and I am Carly Zakin, and we are the co-founders of The Skip. You're listening to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch, where we talk to other female entrepreneurs about what it takes to get to the top, and then what it's like along the way. We're talking bad advice, the really low days, management mistakes, everything that goes into the real stuff. No BS. We started The Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it out than where it all began? We are on a couch right now. Join us in welcoming Beth Comstock to the couch. Beth has built a long career in corporate communications at companies like CBS, CNN, and NBC Universal. At NBC, she helped get one of your favorite binging sites off the ground, Hulu. A little later, she moved to General Electric to take on a communications role. Once she was there, Beth kept working her way up, all the way up to vice chair of the company. And she was the first woman to hold the spot in the company's 126-year history. Wow. And most recently, Beth wrote a book about courage, creativity, and making change. It's called Imagine It Forward. Congratulations, Beth. Welcome to the couch. Thanks for having me. Great to see you guys. Great to see you, too. We are very, very excited uh, to have you here. On a personal note, you have been a mentor to us since day one and truly for, for me since I'm 19, 20, which I think is actually my favorite way to start because you are someone that I knew who you were. You, it was before your GE role, and I was an intern at NBC, and every week I would have to deliver a weekend schedule to all of the executives at NBC so that everyone knew what would happen in case of emergency. And I would have to drop one off outside your office, and I was always really scared to do it, and I really wanted to meet you, and I would kind of like linger, what well, can I catch her outside if she like goes to the bathroom or goes to a conference room? And uh, we met once, and you were really generous with your time, and I just filled you in on what I was doing, and then flash forward years later I started the skim and a lot of people were like you should meet Beth Comstock and I said you know I met her once but she definitely won't know who I am and but like I love the intro again and you knew exactly who I was you remembered the meeting and you're like of course I remember you and I think um to me that moment like it meant the world to me obviously thinking back at you know just um I felt just recognized uh, as a person and as a kid at the time but also I think it speaks a lot to you as a leader who's talked a lot about what it's like to navigate your way to the top and you've obviously written about a lot of that recently so very or, excited or she was a really good liar or a really so, good liar so yeah either case, way we can take I remember some her. tips I yeah thanks her. uh thanks Danielle uh <laughs> so let's start from your beginning which is you switched careers you thought you were going to be something else 
Yeah, I thought I was going to be a journalist. That's what I set out to be a science reporter. And I really wasn't very good, mostly because I wasn't very confident. And I also didn't, I don't think I realized how much I had to, at that day, pay your dues and uh, had to go to, uh, for me to do that, I would have had to go on to really small news stations. And I, it just seemed daunting to me. But I came out of college with a degree in biology, thinking I was going to go to medical school with not a lot of experience. And the few opportunities I got, I just wasn't very good. So the decision was pretty quickly made for me. You, you, need, another, you need another career. And that led me to kind of go behind the scenes. And uh, I ended up working at NBC. But I should mention, I tried a lot of things a few years in there. Like I worked at a public access television station. Think of Wayne's World, if anyone's oh ever watched God. Wayne's World back in the day. It was like that, only not nearly as funny. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, uh, one of the things that I came across in, in doing some research for this was this character of Mr. Rant, yeah. right? So can you talk about him a little bit and yeah. the role he played? So I was um, trying to make my way as a television reporter. I was working at a um, news service. It was kind of like C-SPAN at, at, in Virginia, covering the, the governor's office and the House of Delegates. And I was everything. I registered the cameras. There was a camera person, but I learned how to do everything. I knew how, learned how to edit. And then I, every now and then I'd grab a microphone and I'd talk in the camera. And I used those tapes as a way to kind of be seen at a local television station. And every day at noon, I would call the news director and I'd say, you got my tapes. I'd hope to say, you got my tapes. What do you think? And he would never take my call, never take my call, never take my call. And it just made me more determined. So I'd call him. He was the news director, Channel 12, Richmond, Virginia. I would call him every day. Finally, I guess he got so sick of me calling him. He picked up the phone and he said, would you stop calling me? I have looked at your tapes you are horrible. And furthermore, you look like you're 12. Why would anyone ever hire a 12 year old to cover the news? So basically beat it, get lost. You have no shot. And he just ranted at me. And it was at that moment, I was like petrified. I'm sure I didn't say anything. I was just too shocked. But I hung up the phone. And I don't know if it was immediately, but soon thereafter, I was like, well, wait a minute, this guy doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I'm made of. And it kind of brought out a resiliency in me. And frankly, maybe a resiliency I didn't know I had because I called him every day. And I'm a, I'm a, especially then I was a, really a shy person. But there was just something like, you, I want to have a hearing. I want you to acknowledge I exist. So one of the things that I'm fascinated by is you just said you're a shy person. And you've talked a lot about being an introverted leader. And that's been a big inspiration to Danielle and I because our team never believes this. But we're actually both really shy people. And I think the hard, one of the hardest things in doing our jobs is being kind of putting yourself out there to constantly meet new people, to you know sometimes be the face of your brand or be the leader that that rallies people. Yeah. And what I'm fascinated by is, you know, we always say we were producers for a reason. Like it was hard for us; we didn't want to be on camera. But like you actually wanted, you were trying to get a reporter job. So how do you reconcile like the shyness in you to? kind of aggressively pursuing yeah. this role? It's a great question. I had no idea that I'd actually have to perform and do that in front of the camera. <laughs> Honestly, back then, I think I thought there were only two jobs in television. You were either in front of the camera or the camera person. I had no idea until I ended up getting to NBC, seeing just the range of things. So I don't think I thought that far ahead, to be honest. You are no longer the, the novice wannabe reporter. It worked out for you a little bit. So walk us through how you when you got your first leadership position when you got to NBC like how did that happen yeah well I my first leadership position uh, came when I actually I left NBC because I had a really jerk for a boss 
And he was what I call a classic gatekeeper. And after trying a lot of different things to say, can we work differently? He basically was like, what do you know? And I left and went to CNN, Turner. That was my first leadership job where I got to oversee a team. I think there were eight of us. And I didn't know what I was doing. It, it was, you know, it was daunting. That was my first leadership job. And there was no training manual. I, I, none of the media companies I work for, frankly, in retrospect, did anything really to train you as a manager of people. You just kind of had to figure it out. I think it's so interesting. Your path is you've done, you've had so many different roles. So you started off as like wanting to be a reporter. Then you went into a comms role. Then obviously a GE. Into marketing. Yeah, marketing and then as vice chair, I actually don't really know what that means. So yeah. let's start there. Yeah. What is vice chair Yeah, mean? well, it, it, it GE vice chair was as much a recognition of a career path. Every vice chair has a different portfolio. Uh, mine was business innovation, which meant I was I was there to lead new 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 businesses. So businesses either we invested in, seeded, or turned around. So looking for new revenue from new sources. And marketing was my path to get there. So from communications, really it became promotion, especially in the news world. You're promoting people to watch your news. And from there, got into advertising and then marketing. And that, that became a path to innovation. It may sound strange because most people think of marketing as just what you do at the end. It's the ad. It's the trade show. When, in fact, for us, the opportunity was to bring marketing to the beginning. It was about the insights in the market. Where's the market going? So it became a trend job. It became an innovation job pretty quickly because, hey, we have existing things. We can just target them to new customers. We can drive revenue in new ways. So it was a pretty, it sounds like it would be weird, but it was a pretty easy step to make it about innovation. One of the questions we get asked all the time by ambassadors, by audience members is, is it going to hurt them if they switch jobs? Or they're doing this now, but they really want to do this and they feel like it's so different. How do they get there? And that's been a big part of your career path. Yeah, I, um, I'm a big believer in taking the job no one else wants. Um, I share a story in the book. I actually, I, it's not worth going through the history, but I, I left NBC and came back. And I came back at a time when NBC News was in the dumps. I mean, they had had their own fake news incident. They had tried to blow up a, a General Motors truck, and it brought the news division to its knees. And the communications team was open, and they called me and said, do you want to come, come here and do it? And it was a job that had been open for six months, and people thought I was crazy to take it. It was, to this day, one of the best jobs I've ever had. And I just, I don't know, I think I believe a lot in intuition and seeing opportunities in jobs that other people don't, don't like. I took a marketing job at GE at a time when no one knew what marketing was. So I just tend to be that person that kind of zigs on those, those things and trust my gut. But I think to, to even get noticed for those jobs, you yeah. get called, like you had to do something to get noticed. So how did you, how do you balance that with being a shy person? And yeah. like, and like also I will say like, we know you, you are a shy person. Yeah. Like, and I think like you are reserved and you're very private and like, you're not going to be the loudest voice in the room. Right. So how did you even get on the radar of people to call you and be like, let's, let's see what Beth's up to. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I think partly uh, when I was a PR person, I overcame my shyness by using the phone. I didn't have to meet people in person. So I would call and pitch reporters. And we we established these great relationships that I never had to meet them. So <laughs> that really helped because I could work a wicked phone. I ended up being pretty, after I got over the initial fear, I remember there was one curmudgeonly reporter who used to work at the Washington Post, and he was my biggest fear. And I would, every day, I'd be like, i got to call him. And then I'd hang up the phone. Oh, now i got to call him. So it might take me an hour to get on the phone with him. And then, okay, bye. And then just, you know, one call leads to another. And then I just establish relationships. And so when jobs started to become open, 
and people would say, hey, we look, we're looking for somebody. Reporters knew they had a good rapport with me, and so they recommended were me. Were you aggressive? Like, so let's just say, you know, the reporter called you about the communications job, yeah. and you had an intuition, you wanted it. I'm sure you weren't the only candidate that they were looking for. I might have been at that point. <laughs> Let's say you weren't. <laughs> how did you, like, when you then stick your, get your mind to something that you want it, like, yeah. how do you switch out of the shy mode that has confidence to the aggressive mode that's, like, going after something that you want? Yeah. Well, I, it's interesting. I'm not sure it is, for me, an aggressive mode. I think it is, um, I, well, there's a bit of selling yourself, um, and I think you have to have some confidence in the job you've done. I'm not a natural promoter to myself, I mean, by nature. So I think it really comes down to trying to show my track record. Here's what I've done. I would often approach, uh, let's say that finally someone called me from NBC and you go and you meet them and then you, I'd always want to say, what are some new ideas I can bring to them? So that was a way I sort of creativity was my differentiator. And so I'd try to go in with a couple of new ideas and here's what I can do. I once, when I was up for that job, a woman who I knew said, you know, I don't think you're going to get that job because you're too nice. And so that was a feedback that, oh, I got to show them, like, I guess I'm not nice. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I remember specifically in one of the, the interviews making sure I somehow came across as tough and hand, showed them a, hand, a tough situation, maybe a reporter interaction I had had. So getting that feedback was also really helpful. Time for a quick break. So we were talking about commuting. Yes, and how fun playing the license plate game is on the highway. Again, that's just for you. But it was much better than Punch Buggy. I hated that game growing up. Today, we have cars like Buick Encore to take our commutes to the next level so you don't have to play a game like that. The Encore is a small, luxury SUV with premium amenities like a heated steering wheel. It's kind of like a spa on the road for your hands. Oh, I like that. It also has cool technology like a built-in Wi-Fi hotspot to keep you connected on the go and an 8-inch color touchscreen infotainment system with Apple CarPlay. Apple CarPlay is my favorite. It makes listening to Skim from the Couch easier. Okay, I am all about the Buick Encore, but right now let's get back to the show. What do you think the pros and cons are to being an introverted leader? Because I think it's something, you know, it's like Steve Jobs is like the North Star, right? Yeah. And from the movie, it's like you you know, you see him be tough and rough and push people and like aggressive and I feel like that's become in some ways the icon yeah. of what being a visionary leader is. And you present something very different that obviously has been very effective for you. Yeah, I mean, I'd love your thoughts on that, given that you identify that way. I mean, I think the benefits of people like us who are feel a bit more introverted. I mean, Susan Cain wrote that book, Quiet for a Reason. We're quiet. So we're not the loudest people in the room. So usually people can talk when we're in the room. We're good listeners. We're good observers. I think we're good synthesizers. That's what I've tried to lean into as an introvert, as a manager of people who are introverted. Make sure you ask them questions or in advance say, hey, I, I, you know, I'd like you to talk about this in the meeting or make sure you have a question or can you come to me afterwards with some ideas? So I think you also have an obligation as a leader. How, how do you guys well, see it? It's funny because I'm, I'm picturing our team listening to this and being like, Carly and Daniel are full of shit because they're not introverted. <laughs> and the thing is like in our private life, like we both are. 
Like as soon as I leave the office and I'm like in a networking room, like I'm not the loudest person. Like it it takes so much out of me to, and it's like emotionally exhausting to be the person who's, you know, the team cheerleader. And I think I remember like so consciously in the early days, like when we started hiring people and even before that, as we tried to like just network, we're like, well, no one's going to do this except us. So like we better embrace, like we have to be the loud ones in the room to get stuff done. I don't think that I saw a path of how to do it where I wasn't the, yeah. the loud one. And so I think for me, I feel like I personally now have like two personas. I have the work one and the non-work one. And the work one is exhausting and sometimes doesn't always feel as natural, but it's also probably takes up most of my time. So in many ways, like I'm envious that you were able to navigate kind of staying true to like actually what was most comfortable for you because I think we've had to go out of our comfort zone. So I think for me, it's a little bit different in the way that I think about it, which is when I was in first grade, we had to do speeches. There were like 30 kids in my class and none of them really took it seriously. And I remember going home and my mom made me practice that speech and it was like two minutes and it was like, what do you like to do, right? Over and over Mm. and over again. I was terrified, but I got really good at it. And feeling good at it was a great feeling. It gave you confidence. It gave me confidence. And then over the years, she definitely kind of pushed me into acting. And so I got really used to playing a role. Mm. And that role in my head was like the person that is outgoing and put me in a room with a bunch of other actors. Like I can get up there and do improv and all of that. And, you know, every Saturday in high school, I would have to wake up and do these on camera classes. And that is not who I really am. Like what I loved about it was the writing Mm. that went into it. And that's what I obviously ended up leaning into. But for me, it has become so natural to play that role. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's how I think about it. Yeah, it's funny. My mother was similar. She would push me to be a joiner. She knew I was shy. I think the introversion and shy thing, I mean, you know, experts will say they're slightly different also. And I I think, Carly, what you're saying that that introversion is also this sense of just you're giving away all your energy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people appreciate you just need that space. I mean, I don't know, like... After a week like I've had this week, I will, if I could curl up under my bed, it would be well, better than on my bed. people always ask us, they're like, what do you do on the weekends? We both have, say the exact same thing. We're like, sleep, talk to no one, <laughs> do nothing. And part of it is like, yeah, you're exhausted because yeah. of your job. But part of it is I'm like, I literally just want to be by myself. Yeah. Like, and you literally <laughs> curl inward. And um, I know I remember um, I would have to take time out just, you know, you go on business trips or whatever or team outings. And I could maybe do one night out, but not two. Mm-hmm. And like, to me, if I had a business trip and I could just sit in my room and my jammies having room service it's the best. i know oh, it's, the best. Best. it's just like are I've you our won third the lottery. yeah <laughs> i've won the lottery right yeah, you're just absolute best and it's interesting i think i think as a leader you do have to overcome those parts of your nature because the team expects you to do that and you probably my guess is i never really shared my introversion they knew it but i remember once we did one of those myers-briggs things and i was at intj or whatever that was the first time i remember with a team sort of saying i'm an introvert mm-hmm. and what that meant so you know i'm sure maybe your team doesn't even know you have that they issue have with no, your energy they, i don't think they know that yeah i want to talk about ge one of the things like you are known to like Anyway, especially like just in like the New York hiring pool specifically, like you build great teams. Everyone has said like the marketing team and organization that that you and, and the amazing team that you ended up bringing on like built incredible organizations and just like all star talent. 
what do you like I want to hear about you think about yourself as a manager and like that journey and how are you able to build great teams yeah I love hearing that because I love that team now that I'm not there I miss them I just miss the team so much it's like just a deep longing look early in my management career I, I actually my theory right now is that management is kind of dead And what do I mean by that is I think early in my career, I believed as a manager, I was there to control things. And that meant control people. Mm -hmm. And I had to tell people what to do. And I had to have a checklist. And somewhere along the way, that didn't work. And I learned that didn't work. And um, I think our job as managers is to empower people, to coach them, to fight for the time, the resources, the access, to make sure people are heard. You're hiring different people. And, and the team I got to work with at GE, especially, I mean, we, we worked really hard to hire people who represented different perspectives. And that meant it was hard because mm-hmm. not everybody always agreed. Um, we had a commitment. I, we were just like, we don't know how long we're going to work together. Maybe it's five years. Maybe it's five months. But we're going to commit. We're going to do our best work together. And we're going to fight to do our best work. And I don't know. It was just a commitment we had to each other. And it, it, it ha- how did you navigate bringing in different perspectives when you sometimes didn't agree with yeah. it? And a lot of it we didn't. I mean, you know, and you know how also people don't always tell you. They'll, they'll like tell their colleague, you know, I hate so-and-so or God, there they go again. And so partly you just had to have this agreement. You have to speak up. One of the things we created in the team was what we called our culture club. And it wasn't because we liked Boy George. I was probably the only one <laughs> old enough to know who Boy George was. But um, it was we're going to hold each other accountable for making this a culture we like. And I love this question, tell me one thing I don't want to hear. They had to come to me every time we got together and tell me something about myself or the way I led. And I had to say it to them. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a good example. Actually, um, you know, I chase after too many ideas. I think Mm -hmm. Linda said I like the shiny dog from up. (laughs) I I like every, I I fall in love with an idea for at least 10 seconds. And the team was like, you're driving us crazy. I mean, really, uh, you make us do everything. Like you, you love everything. And we don't know what to do with that. So, like, take a little bit of time before you tell us you like something and be more clear because we hear you like everything and we want to please you and we want to go after it. So I needed to know that. And so that, I think, helps a lot because you don't know that. And then I had to say to them, hey, PR and marketing, like, you guys are bumming me out. You guys are fighting. Mm -hmm. You're acting, you know, PR is upset because marketing has more money. Marketing's upset because PR is, you know, got more access to the C-suite or whatever. you need to come together and we need to talk about this and you know we need to share budgets in a different way and so I needed to hold them accountable in that way too and I thought that was really helpful. So here's a confession. Danielle is really organized and I am really not and Danielle when we first started the skim had to handle all of our uh, kind of business management needs and there were a lot and I just kind of pretended I didn't hear her when she said she needed help but if she asked me today what I would tell her is Danielle try HoneyBook which is a purpose-built business management platform for creative small businesses it honestly just helps with all the paperwork and emails and payment collections through time-saving automation and that's why for a limited time Skim from the Couch listeners can get 50% off the first year of HoneyBook with promo code SKIM. And your membership includes unlimited access to all features at one low monthly price. So just go to honeybook.com today and use the promo code SKIM to get started. Again, that's honeybook.com promo code SKIM. What's the worst management mistake you've made? Oh my gosh, there's so many of them. 
I think the worst one is being abrupt with people, using humor in a way that's biting, you know, not really, it's like funny only to me, and mm -hmm. it's not really, I probably don't mean it is that way. Not taking time to listen to people and just assuming, you know, back to my career, I remember once there was a job open and I hadn't gotten it and no one called me on it. And I finally marched into the HR person's room. Well, I didn't march because I was timid. I tiptoed into <laughs> the HR person's room and I said, I'd like to be considered for this job. And he said, oh, we thought about you, but you are a young mother and uh, we thought it'd be too much travel. And I was so furious at him, but I was really furious at myself because I hadn't put my name in there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a management lesson I learned in that moment, and I know I've done it, where I assume things about people. Mm -hmm. I assume, oh, they don't want that job, or oh, they can't take that now because they really want X, and I never ask them. So that's probably the, the hard, that's a hard thing too. Switching notes a little bit, a theme that you self-identified in your career was innovation, yeah. right? Obviously GE, your book's called Imagine It Forward. One thing that I want to talk to you about is you're on the board at Nike, mm -hmm. and they obviously came out with a new ad with yep. Colin Kaepernick that I think was very different, yeah. and it's been controversial. How how have you thought about that strategy for them? Yeah, well, um, I mean, just to set the context a little bit, what Nike it has done with it is they've resurrected Just Do It. You know, it's a 30-year-old campaign, and I, I think they felt they wanted to stand for something different for the company and they wanted it to be re, re sort of retell athletes' stories and passion. And so they launched it in, you know, the Colin Kaepernick uh, ad got a lot of attention, but it was also stories about Serena Williams, LeBron James, Odell Beckham. I think Nike's, uh, w what they're saying with it is, hey, sports can be a force for good and for social change, and we want to carry those messages of important to our athletes. They also know their consumers really well, and they know their consumers expect brands to take a position in the world. I think we're in an age of brand courage, and it requires brands to take a stand for something, and it means standing for something is may annoy some people, but your consumers are looking for leadership, they're looking for a point of view, and the athletes were a, a voice to do it. But there were many stories in the Nike campaign. That one got the most attention. When I think about you being on the board at Nike and the fact that there aren't a lot of women on corporate yeah. boards. It's, it's a three on Nike now. Yeah. And the fact that you were the first female vice chair at, at GE, which you said was kind of like, well, you've been there for a while, but yeah. it's not just that. Like the odds are not hugely beneficial to women in these positions. Has that been something you've thought at all? Is it, is it something that goes into how you mentor? Yeah. It's something I think about all the time. I actually, after a 27-year career, I'm actually frustrated that we haven't made more progress. I see my daughters in the workforce now, and I feel like I, I love seeing founders like, like you guys. I mean, it gives me so much encouragement. At the same time, I know how hard it is for people. They're still not getting the raises. They're still not getting promoted. I, I saw it myself, the, the scrutiny that, that women, women of color got, that, that men of color got, and it annoys me to no end. It really frustrates me. I feel like I worked so hard. Why is this still an issue? And so I was always aware of it. I couldn't change it. I mean, I could have, as it turns out. I didn't, I didn't you know, I mean, I, I think people were much more accepting of gender fluidity in society, but not in our workplace, not in, in a diversity of thought. And, and so I was always aware of it, but I couldn't change it. So for me, I had to make the work really good. And as I got in positions where I hired people, I made it my job to hire people who were different. I hired a lot of women at GE, and I felt really good about that. Sometimes 
uh, you know, that was maybe out of balance. Maybe we had more women on the team, and I worried about that too. I needed to be a voice of hiring people who were different, and it didn't mean just women, but in the scheme of things at GE, we didn't have enough women, so I felt, okay, I need to continue to bring more women and help bring more and sponsor more women, mentor more women, give them sense. But, yeah, it still exists in every company. And, look, GE's better than most, but it's still a challenge. When's the last time you had to negotiate for yourself? <sighs> um, well, this whole year has been a negotiation <laughs> for myself. <laughs> I've been, it's been a very entrepreneurial year. It's been a very lonely year in that respect, but negotiating – you know, projects that I've worked on, um, certainly negotiating salaries or something I always had to do, negotiating talent. I not, was not very good at it. That time I went back to NBC and that, you know, mm -hmm. job that not, no one really, I thought no one wanted. Truth be told, I didn't get more money. I left CBS to go to NBC and I did not ask for more money. And they, they had no one for the job, mm -hmm. but I was too afraid to ask for it. Did That's you make that mistake again? I, I probably did a few times, but ultimately you start to go, wait a minute especially as you start to see what other people make. How do you start to see that? Like, well, as a, as a manager of mm -hmm. teams, you start, I remember going into an NBC job, and I remember it was like, like this magic box had opened. I got to see the salaries of everybody who had been my colleague. And you're like, wait a minute, that dope got more money than me. <laughs> so you see a few of those, and mm -hmm. like, you, get, you get rebellious about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of knowledge of seeing, and I remember once, you would have loved this, I remember once I was in Andy Lack's office at NBC and he had right out there like the salaries of all the news journalists oh and, and you're like, um, and the, the <laughs> unfairness, frankly, yeah. of some of the people, you know, um, back then. Yeah. And so you start to see enough of that and you're like, wait a minute, I should be asking for more. What's the worst piece of advice you've gotten? The worst piece would be to take jobs just because they look good or it seems like it's good or why did you take this job? I think th those would have been the worst jobs. I mean, I talk in the book about not taking an offer from Steve Jobs. I mean, by all accounts, that was a monumental f flop. I didn't imagine it for it, you know, but it was just my gut that that wasn't the right thing for me. By all accounts, that was great advice to take a job at Apple at a time their stock was just taking off. I want to go back to the Mr. Rant for a second. If you were him, would you have hired yourself then? No. <laughs> I, it's not just because I looked young. I was, I was juvenile, right? Mm -hmm. I, in, in my, juvenile in my expertise. I mean, I was, you know, standing in front. I mean, if you had seen, I mean, literally we had, had an artist draw on a piece of paper my, my introduction card. I mean, it was okay. so amateur. But what I wish he had done was to say, look, here's what I, I want to give you five minutes of advice. Don't beat me up. Just give me five minutes. Like, look, Richmond's too big a market for you. I love what you're doing over there at the news service. Here's what you need to do. Go to Tulsa, which actually I eventually had found my way there and I never ended up taking the job, but go to Tulsa, get six months to three years experience, do this, then come back and see me in five years. Like he would have been so much more helpful to me. Instead, he kind of maybe was helpful because he brought mm -hmm. out this fiery rebellion in me, but that might've been helpful advice. We are out of time, <laughs> so we're going to stop, <laughs> but we could talk to you forever. Uh, so you guys are amazing. Thanks. Thank it's been you. great to get to know you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I, I'm cheering you guys well, on. We I'm love so your book. Excited. Everyone go read Imagine It Forward. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M.com. Two M's for a little something extra. Recently, Skim HQ has been bitten by the clean beauty bug. 
which is we are all looking for toxin-free solutions and products. And uh, I recently discovered Folane, which I am very obsessed with. They have some of my favorite brands like Ursa Major and Herbivore. And they, um, the way that they work is that they're a clean beauty retailer and they have 100% non-toxic products. All of their products go through a rigorous five-step approval process to make sure that they don't have 30 restricted ingredients. So like no toxins, no exceptions is really their MO. Um, but we are obsessed. So now you can get uh, in on a Folane fan favorite, which is called the Clean Essentials Kit. It is the perfect way to start for anyone looking to explore clean beauty. The kit includes travel sizes of four everyday non-toxic skin essentials and uh, a limited edition travel pouch. So there's like a cleanser, a toner, a moisturizer, soap. So again, it's TSA approved, so you can pack it in your carry-on right in time for the holidays. Just go to Folane, which is spelled F-O-L-L-A-I-N.com to get your kit today. And again, that is F-O-L-L-A-I-N.com.